Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Living with Reptiles, the reptile podcast produced by Reptile Keepers for Reptile Keepers, with your host, Brian Parkhurst. In today's episode, we would like to introduce you to Bob Gregory. He is the public relations manager of Hudson Valley Reptile and Rescue. So if you message these guys on their Facebook page, this is a gentleman who will be the first responder. So, Bob, you and I have worked together for a very long time. Oh, years. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, so my name is Bob, obviously. I think we've covered that pretty well. Um, 42 years old. I've been keeping reptiles on and off for probably somewhere in the range of about 25 years with fluctuations in the size of my collection and what I've had and this and that and the other thing. Um, little basic personal info. I'm a restaurant rat. Um, I'm a bassist in a pro- progressive hardcore thrash band. Um, single father to two teenagers. And um, that about sums it up, I think, for the most part. Okay. Um, what's your favorite species you're keeping? Right now, I'm going to say probably a Madagascan ground boa. Um, I've had a couple of doomerals in the past, which are loosely related. They're... Um, generally close in the same family you have to really know what you're looking at to know the difference in the patterns to tell the difference in between them the madagascans can get a little bit bigger but they're fantastically tempered they're just it's something i've been interested in keeping for a long time they're you know great eaters they're easy they're they handle well great like i said great temperaments um i also have at the time a hog island boa who can be a little bit testy but she's a sweetheart as well and um my daughter's pet ball python that's you like those the best um i i mean there are definitely others i like i mean of things that i've kept over the years i've kept carpet pythons and i've always absolutely loved those um a couple of them have been produced by uh, my partner across the table here um who is the master of carpet pythons. If you ever need to know anything about a carpet python, message me. I'll pass it along to him. He knows the ins, outs, ups, downs, all that stuff. Um, well, thank you yeah, for that. Yeah, not a problem. Um, yeah, those are a personal favorite. I've kept a lot of colubrids over my time, and there's just something about keeping a colubrid with the uh, curiosity and temperaments and the energy that they have. Um, they are a, definitely a different creature than a... Oh, by a any, long any, shot, any, any by a long shot. I mean, they are, some of them, they range, they go from being completely spastic and fast moving to just kind of hanging out. And uh, I believe there was an incidence of uh, one of us even having one climb up on our arm and into our, into our, under our shirt, sh- uh, arm sleeve of our shirt, and then decide that we smelled like food. And they, they bit right on and just held on. Um, so colubrids are definitely one of my favorites. They but I mean, are. the great thing is when you do happen to come across a bitey one, and trust me, if you keep colubrids long enough, you will come across a bitey one. They're generally a little bit smaller and more manageable. And if they do decide to latch on and chew on you and mistake your thumb for a pinky rat, it doesn't generally hurt. It might leave a little bit of a mark. I remember when my son Braden was a lot younger, he had a king snake that he actually got from my partner across the table here, who he took look out and I don't know if he had like you know used the Odurat hand lotion that I keep in the cabinet in the bathroom just for such occasions when I right. want to self torture and um this king snake just grabbed onto his pinky and uh he, he just comes over to me like dad check this out he thinks I'm food and I'm um, just like yep that's a king snake <laughs> yep right and it's just one of those things I think everybody goes through that I believe my daughter was two when she was bitten by her first uh eastern milk snake so you know every, yeah, everybody yeah. goes through that process oh yeah um, I mean it's just one of those things where if you're going to be a reptile keeper you're going to have to accept that either it's going to be a food response 
or a cage defense response or a something response. In my case, my, my greatest memory of being bitten actually was a, um, headboard of my bed response with my, um, seven and a half foot super dwarf retic. You want to talk about fast. This is a colubrid in a Python body. I mean, right. they, they're everywhere all at once. They're super curious. If any reptile could really be judged as being a highly intelligent snake, it's probably a reticulated python. So yeah, I got I about, the, I, I was like- cleaning him and I was just like maybe a little bit too fast about switching to plan B after I got him out of the tub. And next thing I know, I look and he's, well, kind of in and out of my wrought iron headboard. So, um, what do you do when you have a seven and a half foot reticulated python wrapped around a headboard? You extricate that python from that headboard. There are right and wrong ways to go about this, and I probably defaulted immediately to the wrong way, and I wore a nice little reticulated python mouth tattoo on my upper bicep for about a week. Yeah, yep. I definitely have been in those situations myself. Was That, that was more of a defensive bite. Though, oh, absolutely, that. because here I am pulling him and trying to get him out of these bars, and, you know, a, a, a snake has a pretty simple set of responses. Yeah. It's going to want food or it's going to want to protect itself. Right. And this was a matter of it protecting itself. Here's some big, clumsy, warm thing that's pulling it by its tail out of its nice, securely wrapped around these metal bars state of being it was in at the moment. And of course, it's going to think I'm trying to eat it or harm it or whatever the case might right, be. Right. You cannot blame the reptile in a no, circumstance no, no, like that. It's I just, mean, you can't really blame a reptile in any circumstance for the most part because usually oh, no, the, you owner, it's, the owner puts himself in that position 90% of the time. Oh, of course. I mean, it's not like the reptile is going to sit there and calculate, okay, I'm going to bang him in three, two, one. Right. It doesn't right, work right. like that. There's snakes and most reptiles in general are what you would call an instinctive creature. Oh, yeah. And they're going to act on whatever their environment and their stimuli are telling them to do at that given moment. So, right, right. Um, So why do you keep reptiles? I think it's probably simply broken down to the point that they just fascinate me. I connect with them. There's a certain feeling when I'm working with them or holding them or feeding them that I don't really get from anything else. I also have a cat. I have a couple of pit bulls and I have teenagers, which are their own animal. Uh, And, um, there's just something about working with snakes and reptiles in general that you just it's it's a vibe you don't get really from anything else. I can it's, definitely relate and agree. It's like the certain idea of them being an instinctive creature and knowing that there's a certain set of protocols that you have to handle and right they're very different they're vastly different from a dog or a cat and you're in in your daily interactions with them yeah and then and then there's the fact that even being a relatively simple-minded and instinctive creature as they are i mean not to insult them in any way but i mean let go read a textbook um even going from cage A to cage B when I'm doing cleaning or I'm doing feeding, there's going to be a different reaction from this animal to this animal. Right. And it's just something that you need to learn how to keep mental track of. And right, right, right. And whether it, it you takes, own- It takes skill. Oh, yeah. It, it takes skill. It takes knowledge of what you're working with. And it's it's across the board. If you keep two snakes or if you keep 20 snakes or you're a large-scale breeder and you're- inventory slash collection, whatever you want to call it at that stage, the game is off the charts. Right, right, right. You've got to know when you're reaching into that enclosure, state of being is going to be. Right, right. Um, do you have a spark moment 
something that set you on this path to own reptiles, to, to, to be involved in the reptile community? Well, this is so long ago, it's going to be hard to look back and actually pinpoint that. I guess when I was a little kid, it was all about dinosaurs for me. And I'm probably going to think that anybody who's listening to this podcast and has the same kind of interest range as I do or as Brian does, probably when they were a kid, dinosaurs were their thing. And obviously, you can't really go out and get a pet velociraptor or um, keep a mini T-Rex in the house or anything like that. So you start to think down the evolutionary curve, there's birds and there's snakes. So it's maybe just an evolution out of that. And I think it was just when I first got my first snake, it was just like, okay, yeah, this is probably something I should have been doing since I was a little, little kid. It just felt right. And it, it... it's weird because once you start keeping snakes and you don't have one, you start to discover there's this strange hole in your being that's like shaped in a coil and is only <laughs> warm if you heat it. Right. So right. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I definitely have gone from having reptiles in my own personal home to not. And I, I, I completely understand what you mean. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, it changes your existence when you can't like, you just have that moment where you need to go over to wherever they are in the room and just be there for yeah. a hot minute yeah. and watch what watch they're doing them. or yep. not doing. And, um, or even just getting home and checking in on a snake you fed three days ago or five days ago or whatever it is. And like, okay, is it ready to handle arm off? Because it's still in food response mode. If I try to get that massive poop, it just left in the corner of the cage. It's just, there's just something about that, you know, it's probably breaks down to some form of self-loathing and torture that we all as reptile keepers carry throughout our existence, but it is what it is. Fair enough. Um, so what about, uh, during your career as a reptile keeper, what, what mistakes have you made that you might warn others against? Oh, okay. So I think Brian tries to keep this to a 25 to 30 minute podcast. So I'm going to try to condense this because there are plenty. Um, Hey, we've all made mistakes. Everybody. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Everybody who has ever kept any animal has made mistakes. And the funny thing about keeping reptiles and having those mistakes, unless you, even if you, oh, I should say, even if you have a mentor who's more experienced than you and more knowledgeable than you and has done it and has experienced this and experienced that, the only real way that you learn from those mistakes is when you make them your yourself because let me tell you one thing there isn't one reptile keeper who doesn't go into reptile keeping without some sense of ego some sense of what i'm doing is right and the only way that they find out they're wrong is when they are proven wrong so let's see just some of the things that i've done remember back a couple minutes ago i was talking about how once you get reptiles it's almost like uh i I forget what chip it is i think it's laser some garbage like that that you can't eat just one right so you get that snake and it becomes a gateway snake and you want this species or you're surfing kingsnake.com and you find this species and oh that's cool and oh he just got a green tree python oh great i want one myself and i was that guy i mean brian can attest to this my snake collection went from two or three to 22 in like probably a lot less time than it should have (laughs) so all of a sudden my husbandry is suffering and You know, it's really hard to keep up on making sure each individual snake isn't being treated across the board in this blanket set of needs that will apply to all of them because, you know, different species from different locales and different microclimates require this, that, and the other thing. And not just that, like you were talking before, different, different personalities. Oh yeah, different individual snakes. And once your collection gets to be that point where it's a little bit bigger for you to manage, then you've messed up. 
and there start to be little things that you miss. Like your humidity might drop on this cage, but you were so busy taking care of reptile one through seven that you might have missed that. And then all of a sudden your snake is sick. And, or has a bad shed. Or, or exactly even, all even, of these even, things. Yeah. Not even a detrimental crazy problem could happen from that. Even little things like a stuck shed, which mm-hmm, may mm-hmm. not be, you know, all snakes can go through that problem, but it may not be an immediate crazy situation that's risking the animal's life. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, is this animal being kept as best as possible as well? Exactly. And it's like one of those things can be an indicator of a greater problem. It's usually something minor is an indicator of something bigger. And you... Right. And if that's your husbandry as a whole... What other things are you missing? What other things exactly. are you, you know, how far is does it that just go? that animal that I'm missing something on? If I have 22 snakes and I've got, you know, a certain amount of time per day, right. when you have a full-time job and a couple of right. kids and right. a house right. to take care of and this and that and the other thing. So I think the biggest thing I had, and I had some fantastic animals that I lost because I just probably got too big for what I could do. Um, That was probably one of the biggest ones. Another one of the biggest ones I feel like I followed was... Probably overfeeding, and I think a lot of us are really, really guilty of that because a lot of us are trying to follow these husbandry sheets and these care sheets, which are designed to get your animal bigger, quicker, because a lot of them were written by breeders. And, you know, the whole weekly feeding thing at this size prey item, that's not really something that happens in the wild for these animals. And you can captive breed and you can hand raise and you can do this and you can do that. But like it goes back to that snake being an instinctive creature and they've been wired for millions of years to be opportunistic feeders and get food when food is available. They're right. not used to having which, – Which means if something crosses their path, they're going to take that opportunity to eat that prey item regardless of whether they're – necessarily hungry or not exactly and when we're following this strict regimented schedule we're probably going completely anti to what this snake has been wired for like i said hundreds of thousands or millions of years to be their ideal way of being kept and their ideal methods of feeding and the thing is, when a snake gets too big too quick, and that takes me back to that retic that I was talking about a while ago, it was a super dwarf retic, and it was sold to me from a reputable breeder who um, had told me it had five foot parents. And I mean, so I went by that, and I went by the care sheets for a reticulated python, and within a year, I had a seven and a half foot and still growing snake. And I think at the most basic level is. I probably overfed that animal and made him grow too fast for what his biology may have been wired for. And yeah, I lost him. And if I was to look back at one regret in my animal keeping that stood out, it's probably that snake. Right, right. For for obvious reasons, for the overfeeding, following the wrong, not necessarily the wrong information, but following information that, that was presented to you in a manner that this will keep your animal healthy. And obviously, it was not the case. And a lot of us, I think, go into it with the idea that growth and size equal health. Mm -hmm. If my snake is big and my snake is round and it's carrying like and quote unquote, I'm making the air quotes with my fingers. You can't see it on the podcast, but that ideal snake shape. Right, right. Then it's obviously healthy and maybe not so much, maybe not necessarily. Right. And- if you're not going to breed your animal, your animal should probably not be extra heavy in any way. Oh, no, no, because no, no, no. And I never... The, during the process of breeding, most 
of those animals are going to utilize that extra weight as their breeding processes go on, they stop feeding or, or what have you. And that, that right. whole, that whole system changes. Um, so they go off of food or they take fewer or smaller meals. So they need that extra stuff. In the case of females, they're either growing ova or they're growing eggs and they're making themselves, they're utilizing all of that extra weight. Um, it's like a bodybuilder who goes into the gym and he eats 10,000 calories of carbohydrates a day, which would make the rest of humanity very overweight. But he has a method it. of burning it off. Right. He, he needs that. And yeah. he needs, he needs that fuel. Right. So it, it is It is a very sound principle in understanding. Which is the same with a breed-cycled animal because you have to take them off a of feed and you have to brumate them and everything right. else. Not always, but a lot of the cases would be that way. A yep. lot of the times, but there's generally some cycle throughout the year where their feeding levels are going to drop. Right, right. Whether and- it's the absence of food. Or whether it's a bermation state of, of the animal Right. Itself. And then when you're following, because there's just so much information out there and you look for the first thing when you're a beginning reptile keeper that's going to make your snake the healthiest, obviously you want the best for it. So you follow this care sheet that may have been written by a breeder who's feeding like that for that certain amount of time of the year and then not. But you keep doing that year round because you're right. not food cycling your right. snake. Right. And then all of a sudden what you think is doing the best for your animal, you're killing it with kindness. Um, so, I mean, uh, now that we've talked about some of the warnings that you would like to, what is one of the coolest moments that you've had in your reptile? Career? I know there's been a lot. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot. Raising snakes from hatchlings or just beyond when you get a really young animal and it's, you know, you've done well with the feeding and everything else and it's growing. But a lot of baby snakes, we all know are defensive because they're this little effectively helpless thing. Yeah, unless you yep, they are baby definitely helpless. Yep, and they're yep. not helpless at all. But anyway, so you work with this animal and you've taken a couple of little tiny pin pricks from their little teeth because they think you're trying to kill them or eat them. Mm-hmm. But then that first time that you get them out and they're cool. And they're okay with being handled. And Do you have a specific reference of a specific animal that you One of your carpet pythons, as a matter of fact. Um, I had gotten one from a clutch that Brian produced years and years and years and years ago. And, I mean, if you've never experienced a baby python, carpet python, they're a little thin bracelet that looks like maybe the fattest spaghetti noodle you've ever seen, but with a much better pattern than a spaghetti noodle. So... When they're babies, they are defensive. Uh, They are little shotguns when you get near them for the most part because, I mean, they're just this little thing you could probably break with a snap of your fingers. But it takes that time and that dedication of working with it and knowing that you're going to get bitten and taking your handling times and stretching them out a little bit more and more and more. And then they suddenly build this understanding or maybe just a confidence level in the animal, whatever it might be. Right. Trust. It's, yeah, it's, it, it comes down it, to it's, trust. It's a total trust level. It probably yeah. is, is repetition and then trust. So you do exactly. the same behavior it, over and over again. It doesn't mm-hmm. wind up getting hurt. You establish that trust in that right. animal to, to know that this is an okay circumstance. And, and all of a sudden you go from predator to tree. Uh, yeah. Tree. You're a branch. <laughs> you're a walking branch and uh, you don't really see snakes in the wild attacking their tree. That's, that's, yeah, nope, they do not eat the tree they sit on. That is right. very true. So once they get that understanding and you can take that snake out and you can show that snake off and you can chill with it for a little while on your couch or whatever it is, take it outside to take pictures and it's not trying to tear your face off anymore. That's right. a really satisfying moment because you know you put in that work. Right. You right. know you 
went through what you needed to go through to get that snake to that point that you can actually really, really enjoy that relationship with that animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Completely understandable. Uh, one more question. Hmm? The final question of this is going to be, how do you see the future of this hobby proceeding? Is it good, bad, or otherwise in your opinion? I feel like it can go a few different ways at this point because, I mean, obviously with some of the legislation they've been trying to pass for years, the things that we could keep when we were younger or can keep now, maybe five, ten years down the road, if we don't keep trying to spread the awareness of these animals and making sure that the right animals are in the right hands and things that are stupid aren't happening and this, that, and the other thing. We're not going to be able to keep those animals anymore. So we really have to be focused on doing it right and spreading the awareness of how to do it right. I think maybe coming together as a community instead of being these divided factions of we do it this way and we do it that way and breeder versus collector and this and that verse, the verses has to go. Yeah, breeding isn't wrong given correct circumstances. Collecting isn't wrong given given exactly, circumstances. Exactly, exactly. And as long as the animal at the end of the day is the one thing that's that remains constant, which everybody has to understand that that is the one thing that's constant across all of those different genres you mentioned, is the fact that the animal's life is of the utmost paramount importance. And that's period. why, to an extent, I really hate the word reptile collector. Correct. You collect like baseball cards. Right. You collect stupid things that have absolutely no sentience to them. Right. You don't collect a living thing. Correct. You have to understand that you are responsible for the well-being of a living thing. It's not just something that sits in a cage and you look at and it's cool and it's pretty. You've got to understand that there is a certain set of things you do that have to be done right. And you can't take those things for granted. Yeah, it's not a hamster. You can't just feed it and give it water and put it in a 10-gallon aquarium with a lid and have it survive. It needs... Exactly. It can't keep itself warm and it can't regulate its own humidity. And these things have to be done right. And guess who's responsible for that? You are. That's right. And I think probably the proper spread of information is a big thing. There's a lot of people out there that know a lot of things about the way that they do things. And... They may be right, they may be wrong, but there is also the whole basic thing it breaks down to of does it work? And it what works for you might not work for someone else, but it works. Right. And your animals are healthy and your animals aren't dying off and your animals aren't getting sick and everything else. And if you're at that state where your group of animals that you're keeping is managed well and healthy and thriving then you're doing it right. And you know, you might not be following this strict once a week feeding regimen or once every biweekly feeding regimen. You might not be feeding maybe once a month or whatever it is. But if the needs of those animals are being met, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot of sentiment out there. I think that if you're not doing it according to the way I wrote my care sheet, you're wrong. And, and I, I agree. That completely. doesn't help anyone. It no. really doesn't. No. It creates more verses like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And the verses, like I said, have to go. Yeah, they we, really we, do. We, we should all be able to understand each other and, and realize that we're all keeping the same kind of animals, regardless of species themselves. They're mm -hmm. all reptiles and they all require a similar style of approach. Um, maybe not exact same style, but definitely a very similar style of approach when, when being cared for properly. And at the same time, the flip side of the coin of what works works is also sometimes what you're doing doesn't work. And 
there's a lot I've seen in the online communities, especially because once everybody gets behind a keyboard, they're all of a sudden a warrior. Um, there is a lot of ego and there's a lot of condescendence, I guess is probably the word right. that I'm looking for the most in terms of the way advice is given out. Like if you're not doing it the way I'm doing it, I have the right to talk down to you when I tell you the right way to do it right. And that's, it's either going to push people into doing more wrong things or it's going to push people out of the community altogether. And that's what we don't need. No, we that's don't need the that. Last we, don't, we don't need thing. to alienate people. No, alienating people is the last thing that we need to be doing. Like I said, any good thriving community, reptiles, music, take that one from me. It's a collaborative effort. And I feel like a lot of people need to look at it in terms of coming together to find the right solutions and to make the hobby move and grow and thrive as opposed to knocking each other down. I also would like to go on on record stating that we've talked on this uh, podcast series with other with other interviewers, interviewees, I should say, um, about the facts that you should do your own research to to a point. And you should realize that if you're constantly asking on Facebook or constantly asking on YouTube or constantly trying to get someone to just tell you how to do it. Everybody should at least have the ability to understand the information that they find themselves presented. Absolutely. And I think that's a big thing that's lost. I think everybody wants the, the, the YouTube reptile keeper. They want to be shown how to do it exactly. And while there are great avenues on the internet for learning, and understanding a lot of them conflict each other. The best way to learn is experience it for yourself. Now, mm-hmm. absolutely, I don't want or your animals get to, to know someone in your area that might be keeping reptiles for a lot longer than you have, and know a lot more than you have. And there's nothing wrong with reaching out to that person as long as they're willing. And and at the mm-hmm. rescue, we offer a very large, open invitation to anyone who ever needs to ask a question to feel free to do so. Especially with the animals that we're taking in that might have come from a less than ideal situation. We want to make sure that when we rehome that animal, that it's going to that ideal situation where things are being done right. And that that new keeper or even that experienced keeper that hasn't kept that species before or might not understand the needs of that particular animal. We want to make sure, obviously, that they have a resource that they can always go to. Right. Absolutely. And we, we are on Facebook as Hudson Valley Reptile and Rescue. And you're more than welcome to to approach us as such with any questions that you may have. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I will. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question, even though I said it was my last question already. This would be an extra five dollars or a cup of coffee. No, or, uh, no. Oh wait, you just tried to fix my engine, so I think we're okay. So go right ahead. Okay. So, um, in your reptile career, you work for the rescue, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all volunteer work. What uh, what's your role? At the rescue, what is it that you... Okay, basically, I am the conduit between the public and, say, Brian and Severo. If there's questions that need to be answered or, you know, somebody has a reptile that they need to rehome and they don't know where to go or, say, somebody's looking for veterinary care and doesn't need know where to go, they'll send us these questions and I'll be the one who will either, if I don't have the information myself, I'll get it for them. You know, I've communicated with some people to set up shows or um, 
or exhibits or stuff like that when they go around local schools or, you know, birthday parties, wherever it is that they go. For a while, I was also handling um, a lot of the paperwork for licensing and stuff like that. So I'm your basic PR administrative assistant type of guy. Yeah, I am an ad ass. <laughs> Let's sum that one assistant. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Chop That's that a, one down. A very good way to put it. And yeah. we, we do thank you for your continued service. Well, I mean, you're, I, you're. The reason why I do it is because the end result is that, you know, these animals that I've been passionate about for a long time are getting needs met that maybe somebody didn't know how to meet beforehand or when I'm setting, when I'm, t- when I'm communicating with somebody to set up a show, you know, it might open somebody's eyes that never really got to experience a reptile firsthand. And now they can, and like maybe they can have that same kind of fascination that I did the first time. Right. 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 Which is fantastic. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of satisfaction that goes yep. along with that. Absolutely is. Thank you again, Bob, for being part of this living with reptiles episode. You have been and will continue to be an important part of the reptile community. Your experiences are invaluable to the new generations of reptile keepers just beginning their obsessions with reptiles. I hope that you will continue to give the advice that some have come to count on when they seek Hudson Valley Reptile and Rescue. On behalf of myself, my guest Bob Gregory, and all of the staff here at Hudson Valley Reptile and Rescue, we'd like to thank you yet again for tuning in and giving us the opportunity to entertain you. Enjoy the hobby and be safe in your reptile adventures. If you'd like to be a guest, feel free to send an email to HudsonValleyReptile at gmail.com. Please put podcast interview in the subject line. Thank you.